Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zagney. Joining me today is Three Moves Ahead founder, Troy Goodfellow. Troy, welcome to the show. It is good to be here on a hot and sweaty Wednesday afternoon. Oh my god, it is absolutely unbearable, and I've probably made a small tactical error in that I basically came straight here from the gym, and the air was not running in my office, so if I just go, like, really quiet for a little while, and you hear, like, maybe a meaty thud, uh, please call the Cambridge police and hospitals and uh, send send them my way, because, uh, <laughs> man, it is not pleasant in here. Uh, we also welcome our old friend... John Schaefer. John, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's good to be here. Uh, it's a little bit cooler on this end, but yeah, it's 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 getting that time of year. Uh, the troops will need some more supply if they're going to make it through this one. <laughs> so today we're going to be talking about uh, something that was sort of suggested uh, to me by actually a visit to uh, Bruce Garrick's house uh, the other week. Uh, I was I stayed a, stayed a night with Bruce and. Bruce is all well and good, but actually the real treasure of spending time with Bruce's place is having access to the Garrick Memorial Library. And while it's a very specialized library and it only has a few topics, um, Russian literature, uh, people invading Russia, um, and tanks, it's, it's, still really, it's still a really good uh, history collection he's, he's sort of curated. And I sort of like found myself leafing through uh, the books there one day and sort of looking at a lot of more modern takes on sort of familiar stories. And uh, the, the thing, the book that actually really put me in mind of this topic was a, a book called uh, uh, Three Armies on the Somme. And I, I forget who wrote that. Uh, but it, it, it's sort of a reinterpretation of the Battle of the Somme. Because if you, if, you, if you think about like what we think of as the Battle of the Somme, right? We all immediately think of, you know, the field of mud. Uh, Tommy's basically drowning up to their necks in, uh, you know, dirt and grime. And just getting murdered by Germans and... British High Command sort of haplessly, you know, like almost characters out of Blackadder going like, well, I don't know. And, you know, sending their men off to get slaughtered. And that's, that, I think, is, is how the battle is uh, often remembered. And in this book, the entire opening is, you know, the, these, these historical myths, uh, you know, have their origins in first accounts and histories written by uh, people who very much had an axe to grind. And then we're kind of stuck with them. And they often lead to maybe not the complete story not the correct interpretation of events and that's been certainly the trend in i think history in in sort of history writing uh for, for like the last you know 50 years is sort of historical revision uh taking these familiar stories and then maybe trying to subject them to a little more quantitative analysis or get different perspectives on them and sort of open those stories up a little bit but that in turn led me to thinking about has gaming taken on board any of those lessons? Do strategy games, war games, do they sort of take on board what we've learned from historical revision, or do they kind of uh, tend to trade in old historical stereotypes? And certainly my suspicion, as I was thinking about this, is that, you know, for all that games sort of fetishize, uh, a lot of games fetishize historical uh, accuracy, a lot of times it's a very particular kind of historical accuracy, right? And not necessarily one that like reflects up-to-date scholarship or understanding of events. And so I kind of want to talk to you guys about whether or not you can think of games that are historically re revisionist and sort of the ways that, that uh, strategy and war games interact uh, with sort of changing historical consensus. <laughs> yeah, this this is definitely an interesting topic and something I've been thinking about a little bit lately. Uh, I've recently been diving really hard into the Hardcore History podcasts, 
anybody who hasn't listened to those and is probably listening to this podcast should check those out. They are really, really excellent. Uh, and they're actually in the middle of a World War I series, which is kind of apt, given that uh, we're talking a little bit about stereotypes, and certainly there are some very well-known ones about the First World War. And I would say that there's definitely a big gap between what games are doing and uh, even more mainstream historical survey. And I think that comes out of the fact that games are... Uh, kind of selling a fantasy versus stimulating intellectual curiosity. Whereas with the study of history, the questions you're asking are what happened and why. Whereas with a game, you're kind of wanting to put yourself in the position and relive that. So you're coming at it from different angles and that inherently uh, starts us off on a, on a tough foot in terms of getting to more uh, deep or interesting stories. So it's it's certainly an uphill battle, and I think we're seeing that with the games that have come out uh, in the past, you know, 20 years. Yeah, World War One is an interesting case, and probably, I mean, the, I mean, the, the saying is the British Army was was a lions led by donkeys. That everything was the fault of really bad commanders, and then all of a sudden in 1917 they get good commanders, uh, and some new technology, and that overcomes whatever was going wrong at the British High Command. And it's really interesting that we're be starting with this, because this is really such a British and allied and commonwealth myth, right? This is Somme, this is Passchendaele, this is Gallipoli. Um, and I wonder what the German equivalent myth had to be revised is, because we don't, I, I'm sure there is, and I know we have many German listeners, so feel free to pitch in the forums on what Germans are told about their World War I experience, because, you know, there were other people in the trenches who also weren't getting very far until March 1918, but on our side, we hear about how great Hindenburg and Ludendorff were, which fits into, once again, this cultural perspective of the Germans as this great military power and uh, this, the great myth of you know, German efficiency, and, which becomes Nazi efficiency in World War II, and it took you know, decades for people to say, no, no, actually, the German high command was a complete bureaucratic nightmare. They were not efficient. They were radically inefficient. They didn't do anything right or sensible. Um, but that's a myth that you still see through World War II strategic games, right? You still see the Germans as this great industrial superpower, even though you know they weren't even fully mobilized for war until near the end of the war before it was too late. They didn't have women in the factories. They were still making you know, domestic automobiles until like 43 or 44. But we have this picture of the German great awesome war machine fully geared to conquer things. And that's not how things were. But strategy games still have this picture of Germany as a fully armed Prussian camp all the way through, um, despite revisions. So there is certainly this, I think John's right, part of it is a fantasy. And part of it is also this desire. And I think, not going to say necessity, but because of the simplifying nature of games, we require things and distill things down to archetypes. So designers gravitate to the archetypes and turn the detail into things like you know, how far do they have to go? What do the units look like? Instead of what did what are the assumptions this design is based on? Are they actually accurate? <laughs> yeah, and it's it's really difficult as a designer because you're you're seeking to make something for an audience. And I would broadly categorize games into, into two rough camps, and there's certainly some overlap. Uh, but between commercial games, which are purely trying to get money, and more art games, which 
money is a secondary goal, if, if that. And uh, like I said, certainly there's some overlap, but with, with larger games, certainly titles like Call of Duty and, and Battlefield and, and whatnot, you'll see them leaning heavily on the commercial side where the appeal is to kind of that mainstream uh perspective on history that you know world war ii was won by the americans and the americans showed up and you know killed all the germans and the germans who look there's a tiger tank and unfortunately there's very little incentive to try and change that from the development perspective especially for these bigger commercial games uh and you're seeing some pushback on that on the on the art front a little bit more but again you're you're trying to sell something um, you know literally but also figuratively sell that fantasy and you need to make something that resonates with an audience and until that story about uh you know the german high command not being you know everything that people think it was kind of permeates down into society more generally it's harder to sell a game that that pushes that because it will either come off as odd or it might even push people away if you're saying oh you know hey look we're focusing on this game where the, the Germans weren't all that great, then people might say, well, but I want to play a game where the Germans are great. That's the whole point, right? And it's kind of a tough situation, but uh, you know, it's, it's almost a chicken or the egg kind of, kind of thing where you as a designer might want to push the boundaries a little bit, but uh, it, it's hard to get to the point where you can be secure doing that. Uh, but I think another issue is that a lot of this is driven by interest of developers as well. And developers, most of them, obviously, are not historians. So if their perception of World War II is that the Germans were really amazing, then that's going to filter through to their games, obviously. And that's a bias that it will be really, really hard to get over because unless you have somebody that is an amateur historian or reading these books, it's just not going to change. So it's, it's again, it's tough, but... Um, you know, hopefully we will see a little bit of movement there. And it's kind of something I'm trying to do with At The Gates. Um, even though I will admit I'm leaning a bit more on the gameplay side, I'm trying to filter a little bit more of the, the alternate perspectives on history in into the game. World War II is interesting because just last year, was it, we had you know the Russian community, Russian gaming community, being up in arms over Company of Heroes 2, which they thought, was trafficking in, you know, debunked myths of, you know, the commissar forcing peasants through minefields with a pistol as, you know, being standard Stalinist strategy. And I don't know enough about the Eastern Front or how common that was or where this even came from. But there's an example of, you know, a game that was, of course, targeting a Western audience, but a global audience as well, because Company of Heroes is such a big popular game. And then they run face first into a wall of, well, that's not how the way it was. I mean, where are you getting all this information? And it's from, you know, the histories that they were reading, which maybe we're not interrogating the Soviet sources. Maybe we're trafficking uh, in old uh, debunked myths. Maybe we're saying things that were true that aren't in the Soviet sources for some reason, because we have this, uh, your understanding of history so heavily depends, you're right, John, on what people have actually read or what they've seen in the History Channel. Um so there's, there's a, I think there's a really good example right there of when what happens when you have, you know, what is perceived as, what is received history is seen by the other side as a complete fabrication. But as I pointed out at the time, this was not the only game that had that. I mean, other games that had Soviet armies had commissars. Um, even Red Alert, 
uh, as commissars. That's a pseudo-Soviet army. And there was a, I remember a really mediocre game from the early 2000s that a commissar unit, the Soviets, uh, could build. So this is a, something that has fallen down, has been perpetuated uh, by the gaming world, but then it gets really, really big on a major title, and now we have, of course, the internet, and you can see this response to it. And the question, I mean, is that, do the game, and Cup of Heroes is a game that, you know, sells itself on, you know, it's an accurate representation of the weapons and the war, we're telling a really serious war story, we're a war movie, and there's something, you know, off uh, for the Russian audience. So I think there's a, a, a solid example uh, that we can probably use as, you know, the, I guess the, the template in the archetype. I do want to hear more about At the Gates uh, towards the end, because I'm reading a book about Attila the Hun, a uh, biography of Attila the Hun, uh, before I dive into the new economic system and At the Gates, which I'm quite excited about, uh, and getting your perspective on that, because it's really an interesting problem with sources and materials. And I mean, ancient history is my 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 world, and there we run into all ton all kinds of cultural biases and historical understandings that are received, and you know the fight over what the proper terrain is. And I, I think games have I'm not gonna say responsibility to tell the truth of history because one they don't because they're an art for an art form. So the mo- and the mo- second the most they can tell is a perspective on history. But I guess what I'm interested in, what I'd like to see, is the possibility of games that let players explore different understandings of history maybe uh, i'm not too sure how that would work <laughs> yeah i think it's also worth pointing out that with history in general you're always going to run into these sorts of bias issues oh, and, absolutely and you know games are just one extension of that but there is no objective history so uh i, I think the term that rob actually opened with revisionist history is yeah. actually kind of a good one because yeah it's not you know, the real history or the better history, it's another perspective. And with history, more perspectives is always good. But, you know, there is that caveat of, hey, well, this isn't necessarily even closer. It's just something else. I mean, revisionist history properly understood from an academic perspective is a little bit more than just another perspective. I mean, the, the, the classic example is uh, reconstruction history in the U.S., mm-hmm. where from, you know, you know, the early 20th century until about the 1950s, the story was Reconstruction was corrupt Northerners coming down and imposing their will in the South and putting all these illiterate black people in power and oppressing a South that didn't want them there. And then that was fixed well, by so driving Adam, them out. Adam then, Serwer uh, is a reporter for MSNBC. And actually, he said something really wonderful this morning. He said that uh, history of the civil rights era, the civil rights movement era, is... Uh, fan fiction written by the winners uh, and sort of mythologizing of uh, Martin Luther King and sort of whitewashing uh, the original, the initial history sort of whitewashed yeah. a lot of his character. Uh, and whereas history of the Civil War and Reconstruction is fan fiction written by the losers. Yeah, I mean, I always hold up, I mean, when people tell me, you know, the winners write history, I always hold up, you know, our understanding of the Reconstruction for the first 75 years after Reconstruction as the example of no, often it's not written by the winners. It can be written by the losing people entirely, which it was because interest in Reconstruction was for a long time based in the South. So they trafficked in, you know, racist myths and ignoring the influence of, you know, terrorism like the Klan and, you know, hold, and not that Grant was a great president, but seeing him as like the most corrupt president ever, um, 
a because he tried to enforce a radical reconstruction. But then we have you know a revisionist period in the '60s that goes back and look at some of these sources that were being used or being ignored uh, for a long time. Well, actually, no, that is just some of this is true. There absolutely was corruption. Yes, there was you know mismanagement, but there was this was not you know it isn't the story of the North you know pillaging the South uh, for a third time. Uh, so it's there's this. Um, so that's revisionist, I think, properly understood that it brings new perspectives uh, to kind of upset and upend. It's not simply a different view of, uh, but you know, say our understanding, everything we've been taught, is kind of misses something important. And you know, I was you know at in grad school, you know, kind of at the crest of a bunch of revisionist histories from the social history perspective, when people are saying, well, you know, we haven't looked at what women were like in this period, and that really changes how we understand, you know, medieval France or imperial China or what have you uh, by adding these perspectives, and it does revise and revisit uh, as much as, well, it's a new perspective on, which is certainly true. There isn't an absolute single truth, and you can live through it and still not understand it. Like, I don't understand the 80s at all. Uh, <laughs> but uh, there's something to revisionist history as a real meat to, well, wait a minute, what, what if this is completely not the case? And I think, you know, um, a lot. Of, I haven't read a lot of the World War I revisionist histories of, you know, the British high command, and there's certainly a lot of debatable room there. But there is, because it is such a, because the world was changing so fast, you do get this, you know, class perspective, and you have competing nobles, you know, taking each other down. And I mean, no one's ever going to convince me that Haig was, you know, some great General Lee for Britain who was trying his damnedest to get there. Uh, but I don't think he was a callous, idiotic monster necessarily. Uh, so we have this. Really, I mean, I think, I think the Blackadder. I mean, this was even a debate uh, in Britain. What was it? A few months ago, uh, where the one of the home, one of the cabinet ministers in the British government was angry at Blackadder history, that painted um, the British High Command in World War One as entirely incompetent buffoons. Uh, so you had this debate in the BBC and another media. Well, how accurate is our impression of this? You actually had some discussion in the popular press over uh, how we understand this, um, and because. You know, Blackadder Goes Forth is just such an amazing piece of work. Uh, it is shown in schoolrooms around the world, the English-speaking world. I know that I showed it. Um, there is this received wisdom that gets perpetuated. So the question is, does this trickle ever, is it ever going to trickle down <laughs> to a gaming population? Uh, so you have to keep fighting these battles over and over again uh, in many cases. Mm-hmm. Well. So I find that a lot of the World War One revision is interesting, and the timing of a lot of it was interesting, right? Where, you know, you, get, you start getting the uh, you know Niall Ferguson uh, sort of, you know, where, where there's also kind of a defense of the old empire tied into that too, right? Yeah. Where where there's definitely kind of a you know what really caused Britain's decline was sort of a loss of will, and it was those damned pacifists after World War One who started to really set the poison. And it becomes contested territory for. It, you know, it becomes like, oh, we have to start recasting this lesson from history because now there's policy outcomes we want today and tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, so we have to start 
sort of attacking these old ideas. I mean, I think, uh, you know, Max Boot is, uh, you know, one of the absolute, uh, you know, foremost and you know in my view worst perpetuators of this in uh, american historiography um where you know everything now is recast you know uh, let's look back at the past and oh yeah what do we discover thomas jefferson and george washington totally would have invaded iraq um it's the american way that's that's you know not that far a simplification uh you know of his uh, you know Savage Wars of Peace thesis, so it's it's interesting when these these bits of revisionism start to uh, start to crop up. Uh, but oh yeah, I mean I I was a uh, I forget what it was, right around the launch of the Iraq War I forget who it was it might have been Robert Harris might have been some other classicist was looking at Pompey's war against the pirates as a model for American policy against Iraq and terrorists. Yeah, and that's um, kind of, that's kind of reaching back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the analogies begin to break down, uh, but I, I, here's 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 my question though: Are we also kind of trapped by the fact that what we model in games, where we where we locate the player, actually tends to be fairly limited? Um, you know, if you're playing a war game, for instance, uh, you're you're kind of almost always the general, uh, even even if you're a general that could not possibly have existed in real life, right? Like where you're commanding like each individual company going over the top in a massive assault. Um, nobody can be giving those commands, and yet you're sort of located there as the sort of all-seeing eye of Sauron, you know, telling your telling your troops to go forward. But that also sort of ends up locating you within sort of a great man ideal of history, right? Where you have its generals who matter, its decision makers who matter. And what gets lost a little bit is that, you know, well, there's institutions behind these things. There's, there's entire societies that go into comprising, uh, you know, the, the forces with which, uh, you know, nation, nations struggle. And that's, that's harder to represent, but in some ways I think is, is maybe, you know, also really interesting territory is is this notion that um, well to to go back to the German example and I'm kind of interested to see uh, you know where uh, the new hearts of iron ends up going with this as well you know if you look at the German army and a lot of people's imagination of it and a lot of the the accounts of it uh, from like right after the war is at a tactical level they were they were effective you know they were better led uh, they, they did often they had better equipment in general, um, these things these things did matter. But if you begin to move it back and start looking at the broader picture, um, you know the, the Germans were yeah the, the Germans were an absolute mess, and there were there was a lot of rot deep within that system. But games are bad at representing that because if you're playing a strategic game, you can always just be a smart you can always just be a smarter Hitler or Goring, right? You can yeah. always be like, oh boy, we need to we need to produce some more tanks because we're this war with Russia is going to be tough. You know that. You're not going right. to be like, let's keep the consumer industry uh, kicking along here and try try to wage a world war without actually fight, you know, hit, having that hit home. Uh, you you can you can do that, and if you're playing on the tactical level, all you have are these great toys and uh, you know these veteran troops, and so again, it's sort of like it ends up confirming these old these old historical biases. But what you don't have are games that sort of can take you beyond can give you a perspective not from say just a general uh, on the you know a, a general on the front, but give you a better understanding of. Um, you know the institutions and organizations that that give rise to events. <laughs> yeah, and if you look at Sid's definition for what a game is, that kind of tells you 
where uh, these these two things conflict. Uh, if, if a game is a series of interesting decisions, then you want to be making the decisions. You want to be the one in charge, the one guiding what's going on, regardless of what that is, whether it's the German high command or, uh, you know, sending a guy over a trench. You want to be the one making the decision. You don't want there to be factors outside of your control that determine whether or not you win. And, yeah, those two are kind of diametrically opposed. And uh, you see some games where they're shifted a little bit. Um, you know, the Majesty series where you're not directly in control of uh, dudes running around. Or uh, even a game like Victoria 2 where you can in some governments influence what capitalists will invest in what factories they'll build but you can't control it directly but there's also governments where you just build it and of course you're not even representing a, an individual person in a game like victoria 2 but more like the perception of history you are the guiding hand of history and you can you know stomp on things if you want to and I'm not sure there's a way to really reconcile those, uh, at least in terms of perspective. Uh, if you're a guy stuck in the middle, you don't want Hitler making really bad decisions because it's just not going to be fun, you know? Even if it's interesting, even if it's more realistic, it's just not going to be as much fun. Games are also exaggerations, and especially historical strategy games. I mean, I've mentioned the archetype before, and archetype is really a big part of it. We have the whole, you know, quantity versus quality. And I remember thinking back to the old um, Europa Universalis games that had sliders. That, you know, really, you have to choose which one you're going to be. You want to have a big army, you want to have a really large one, or a small, good army. You know, it's all about these archetypes. And we've seen it in, you know, the most recent civilizations, where all of the cultures are kind of given... You know, archetypes. Well, I mean, there's the culture sieve, and there's the there are the Aztecs who are the vicious, sacrificing people. There's the Zulus who are the noble savages, noble warlike savages. And these are all just archetypes we plug into, you know, our brain because we think archetype archetypically or archetypically uh, when we engage with our art and we engage with our media. And because games, even historical strategy games, I mean, I know a lot of us, a lot of us, a lot of people, oh, it's history, it's learning, it's education. No, I mean, to go back to your analogy, historical strategy games is fan fiction for nerds. I mean, we are a bunch of people writing our own history and we're the star. Um, and so we have to, so we construct villains and archetypes to hang things onto. And history, you know, it's because we do think in, we think in analogies and we're trained things. And I'm not, I had pretty good high school history teachers, but even then, you know, who was Philip II of Spain? He was the religious guy who wanted to destroy English freedom. That's who Philip II was. That's what we learned about Philip II. I'm sure they're taught a different thing in Spain, but this means that a game with Philip II or with the Spanish is going even game with the Spanish. The Spanish are going to be really good at religion, and they're going to be good at killing natives. And these are just archetypes we hang things onto. These aren't necessarily revisionist history. And so you look at things like I mean, the Black Legend. There's a there's a good example. The Black Legend is a propaganda thing. Uh, permeated and promoted by the British and the French saying that the Spanish were worse to their slaves and natives than the English were. Um, and some of this is based a bit on fact in the works of Bartolomeo de las Casas. But really the purpose was to make the Spanish look like worse colonists than uh, the English, to justify the English benevolent rule more than anything else. So the, and the black legend is still has... A, even though it's full of exaggerations and complete fabrications and is a whitewash of English, French, Dutch, Portuguese 
uh, colonialism, the black legend still permeates our understanding in games of what Spanish conquistadors were, what Spanish conquistadors are. You look at the expedition conquistador, where there's it's all about exploring, and you have to have the racists on your party for some reason, because <laughs> that gives you a benefit if you have some racists in your party. There's a bonus to that. Uh, colonization, where the Spanish get a bonus for destroying, you know, because if they kill more natives, they get more gold. So they're kind of encouraged to be the aggressive, you know, colonizing power. Um, this is kind of a big thing. Uh, and there's something that's been, you know, debunked and revised for a long time. But our understanding of, you know, Spanish colonization is still my. Those guys were jerks and assholes. <laughs> uh, despite, you know, a century of looking at the black legend and saying, well, you know, really, we were all kinds of assholes, weren't we? Um, but the Spanish are still seen as, you know, the absolute worst. They're like the Satans of the colonial period. Um, not Belgium. Even though that's you know, 200, 300 years later, you know, Belgium kind of gets off pretty clean, uh, despite its history. Or, or Portugal, which are hardly, you know, the nicest people. And there's an example where revisionist history did not, has not caught up in games. I, I think thanks to this latest World Cup, though, the word is out on Belgium. I saw a lot of people being like, you know, and another thing before we play Belgium in the, uh, in the round of 16. Huge genocidal assholes. Yeah, they only beat Congo <laughs> by cutting off the goalie's hands. <laughs> oh well yeah i think that's a really good point and and games really are an example of an unfortunate confluence of a multitude of factors one being you know commercial we want to appeal to people that ne aren't necessarily as uh familiar with these elements of history uh and the idea of telling a story where uh, people are really good at putting things in boxes these are the good guys these are the bad guys these guys are aggressive these guys are peaceful these guys are well trained these guys don't know what they're doing and obviously that's the case in all areas of life but it, it really plays out here where uh, you have so many elements that are coming together not only do you have the the question of what actually happened in history or what different perspectives are there but making games is hard and if you're worrying about all of these other, you know, quote unquote, external elements, you might do a good job there, but then end up making a bad game. So as a designer, you really need to be trying to narrow things down as much as you can and decide what you are going to focus on because you can't do everything. You can't show no. every perspective. You can't represent every event, every uh, factor. You have to distill it down. And the question is, what do you distill it down to? And ultimately, that means you're going to be exhibiting some kind of bias. And usually that's the mainstream bias because, again, you have commercial interests and um, sometimes you know designers just won't be as familiar with the history. And this is the result that you get. Uh, and I think that things are getting a little bit better now that you have funding models like Kickstarter and you have more independent developers and smaller developers. Uh, this isn't a strategy game, but uh, I was recently looking at uh, something called Valiant Hearts, which is a mm -hmm. World War I adventure game, and it represents some elements of the war that aren't as mainstream which is a good thing. Uh, certainly there are some stereotypes in there as well, but this is the kind of game that you wouldn't really see 10 years ago. And I'm hoping that eventually this kind of filters down to the strategy side of things as well, but it's, it's particularly tough in this genre because uh, strategy games don't necessarily lend themselves well to being art games. 
if you have an adventure game or if you have a shooter, if you have a puzzle platformer or whatever, you can, you can play around a little bit more. You can be more abstract. You can focus on certain elements. But with a strategy game, the way I like to describe them is that they're a web of systems. And if you pull on any single thread within the web hard enough, the whole mm -hmm. web will come down. That means you have to be really, really diligent about how everything fits together and really, really careful about what you put in what you don't. Um, and, and there's certainly plenty of games where uh, there's too many elements or some element doesn't work and it just collapses. And if you have a, uh, a strategy game that ends up like that, nobody cares if it's historically accurate or if it represents multiple sides. So there's, there's also the reality of making these games as hard and accounting for these factors makes it even harder. So it's, it's, it's going to be a slow process, uh, to be sure. Let's put a little counterfactual here. I mean, there aren't a lot of World War I war games in general, or strategy games in general, because the assumption is, you know, nothing happened until, mm -hmm. until something did. Um, what if we turn that on its head and say, no, something could have happened, that the generals really weren't bad, we give them opportunities, they just, they just worked themselves into a trap. There is an actual war plan and war game. There's a way this war could have been over by Christmas, besides the Schlieffen plan actually working. That it is possible for this thing to have been wrapped up in 1914, 1915, 1916, that it isn't just you know, generals being idiots. That there, this is a tactical puzzle players can actually solve um, somehow. Because uh, I think part of the assumption is that it that it, it couldn't be. There was no way around this until we had you know better technology, and the Americans showed up, and Foch showed up like the angel Gabriel, I guess, <laughs> and had insights no one else had ever had before. Uh, when of course it was the Canadian Andrew Curry who was like doing it all. Uh, <laughs> so you have Happy Canada Day. Did I hear Happy bias? Dad. No, this is this is this is Canadian revisionist history. He's our greatest general. <laughs> And he was awesome. Um, and he didn't kill as many Canadians as the British did. I guess that's why he was awesome. Uh, so I, I, so a, re, a revisionist exploration of World War I, I think, would be one that assumed the war could have been won. That assumed that it wasn't necessarily that bad generalship that lost this. It was bad luck and a trap and maybe... If, the British, maybe the Belgians could have helped the Germans. Maybe the British could have broken through with the Marne, with the French. Maybe there's a pro Maybe the Somme offensive could have worked um, with a slightly different plan available at the time. Um, so a revisionist history, I think, of World War One, a revisionist game of World War One war game, would posit this. I think that would be that would be a reasonable revisionist approach to it as a war game, right, Rob? Would you accept that as a premise? Yeah. <laughs> but what's, what does that actually look like as a game? It's still, but still, this is the crucial problem, feel like World War I to the player. Because the player has expectations of what World War I is. Uh, and World War I is slow. World War II, we have history, how it happened, is kind of a trap. Um, because there are, as Jaws says, all these confluence of factors. Now, I'm not sure we have any games that World War One games that even acknowledge how stupid Haig was, or say how stupid Haig was. This leadership's kind of removed entirely from World War One games, which it isn't in a lot of other games. Civil War games, World War Two games, you know, leadership is kind of held up as pretty important. But there aren't a lot of World War One games in general, and second, the ones that are there, <laughs> leadership's kind of invisible. 
Well, right? I think our image of leadership, battlefield leadership in World War One, is sort of a black telephone sitting in a dugout somewhere, you know, with a wire connecting it to a chateau some t- somewhere behind the line. And I think that's, you know, our image, like the, the general is on the other end of that phone. And it's not like the Civil War where, like, we have this idea of, you know, uh, you know John Reynolds leading the first corps at Gettysburg. And as long as he's there and he's alive, those guys are like, okay. Like, things are going to be okay because Reynolds is alive. And, but, you know, to an extent, there was, there, there was a morale effect, uh, a moral effect of, of having of having generals nearby. Like, the, a lot of what a general did in combat, right. certainly a brigadier, was just rally troops and keep them from freaking the hell well, out. But, but, but compared to, to World War II, where, you know, you could have Guderian giving bonuses uh, in battles. Yeah. Or, or, yeah. or Zukov, I guess, they may have hearts of iron on the, on the brain here. Where yeah. the assumption is, you know, these leaders brought something unique and powerful. It was a time of great military leaders because there's an assumption that a great offense, a great attack ability makes you a great military leader. You know, the ability to marshal decent defense um, isn't in so, some of our leaders. There's kind of this, I guess it's a traditional bias towards the attack, attack, to drill attack as, you know, that's what makes a good general. There are also examples, even in World War One, where leadership makes a big difference. Yeah. Um, you know, probably the best example is uh, Eric Ludendorff in, in 1914, when he personally runs forward and pounds on the gates of a fortress and demands the surrender, and they do. <laughs> That's not so much something that you get later in the war, but certainly it's, it's, it's an example of um, personal influence it having an effect. It. Yeah, the, the Eastern Front's kind of ignored altogether in so many ways. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, you can see that. Uh, this this kind of brings Speaking up almost, of biases. Yeah, this, this this all almost brings up an interesting example with uh, Company of Heroes Two, which you you talked about earlier, where the whole idea behind Company of Heroes Two is that it focuses on the Eastern Front and the Soviets, and and you know, isn't this kind of new and interesting? And of course, they they ran into some other issues on that front, uh, so to speak, but. It didn't take very long before the kind of the narrative surrounding Company Heroes 2 turned into, well, hey, you know, maybe you didn't like the, the Soviets that much because games about Soviets don't really sell. But now we're adding the Western powers and isn't this a big deal and let's all get excited about this. And, and certainly I have no insider information, but I can only imagine that uh, the, the original version of the game might not have sold as well as they were hoping. And they said, well, what can we do about this? Let's, let's add the Western powers because that's what sells. Uh, so this this might be even an interesting example of well <laughs> counter counter uh, influence of history where okay they did try to go out on a branch and then you know annoyed some people in the process uh, and then kind of shifted pivoted back to where where they started from um, and, and maybe this is kind of damning in a way but I, I think it's a very interesting example of exactly what we're talking about kind of trying to branch out a little bit in terms of what the focus is and then how well does it work you know it's it's hard for us to say as outsiders but I, the verdict doesn't look so great right now yeah that's and i think that's sort of i find it a little depressing right because i think you know the three of us certainly we like history right we like sort of learning about new history and we like ne- seeing you know learning new stories and then when it comes time to like sort of look at what your options are for like I would like to go explore that topic in a game, and for a lot of that you're you're you know you're, the pickings are really slim. Um, certainly we've been talking about doing sort of a World War One themed month uh, for for August to look at the centennial, 
and uh, Troy, I think you and I both sort of hit the problem of, well, <laughs> shit. Uh, there's there's not a there's not a ton of World War One games out there. And not, a lot of, the, not a lot of World War One strategy games, no. Yeah, and and not a lot that are particularly well regarded. It's not like World War Two uh, where you can pick a major battle. Well, even World War Two has this problem though, right? Like, I mean, oh, do you want to do something on the campaign in Normandy? Well, here you go. Here's a million games. Uh, oh, you want to do something, you know, in the Pacific? Ooh, uh, here's here's four or five. Uh, it's you know it's a similar sort of thing happening. Yeah, that, that's because boats are boring. Well, yeah, navy navy is tough. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, yeah. You know, nothing in the Balkan campaign. You're very stretched, but something even in Italy, for God's sake. Italy was crucial. Tons of amazing stuff. But you know, yeah, it's, it's Normandy, Bulge, Market Garden. Well, it almost seems like you, you gotta know, have Amer- you gotta have Americans there. If Americans aren't there, it doesn't count. Yeah, and that's and maybe that's sort of the the most uh, you know pernicious bias is that in all these wars, um, you know the the primary lens is English speaking, and that's that's yep. for you know not just cultural affinity though, but also we just like to sort of place ourselves at the center of the narrative. Um, at, the, at the beginning of um, uh, the Price of Glory, uh, Alistair Horne's history of Verdun, a really excellent book by the way. Uh, he talks about how Verdun for his generation was was sort of everything that was wrong with World War One, right? Everything that was despicable. You know, it was this this really cold-blooded, calculated battle of attrition, two armies just grinding each other to a pulp. The Germans have sort of cynically said, we'll just bleed France white, and that's how we're going to win the war. Um, and World War II, by contrast, now that was that was a war of objectives, right? There wasn't about attrition. Like, we were actually moving the front and achieving things. And in the introduction, he's like, well, we, we thought that at the time because we, we saw the Western Front and we saw, you know, the campaigns in North Africa and then later the campaigns in, uh, you know, the campaigns in Normandy. But World, he's like, but World War II was clearly won by you know, a million Verduns happening just out of sight, uh, you know, happening right. happening in the East that we didn't like to think about, that we didn't know about, uh, and that we still haven't really given their historical due. Um, so, the, you know, I think there's there's a there's a few there's a few things tied in there, and, and one is just that um, one is that the Russians always get screwed in the story. Um, you know, the Eastern Front, World War One, really fascinating front. Uh, books and, and games about it, not and, so many. And it's a front with movement. And, you know, in Germany in 1914, you actually have real battles of maneuver, the sort of stuff we like to play games well, about. And it has the most like resounding historical effects of really any outcome of that war. I mean, it ends the czars and gives rise to the Soviet Union and really sort of inaugurates what will be the major struggles of the 20th century. Um, but I do think there is sort of this tendency uh, to always sort of discount uh sort of discount the russian point of view i think there's a really deep seated uh, belief that you know the russians are always sort of you know painted as sort of these either victims or really determined peasants uh you know who just who just march out there and die and i think that's sort of a that's sort of how the germans have have tended to paint them uh from from their from their brushes and i think that that lens tends to be uh tends to be adopted here in the west stoic Um, drunken fatalism that's how we see russians in our media yeah (laughs) uh but i i do sort of feel like with games that 
any game that even deviates a little bit from the norm, it's almost like the first step has to be educating people about what you're up to. Like, I remember with uh, Company of Heroes 2, a lot of the previews were kind of written from this perspective, and, and certainly Relic were sort of promoting this angle of, hey guys, there was this entire crazy war out there in World War II that you don't know about. You ever, it really, like, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but there was definitely this attitude of, if you think the Western Front was crazy, let's introduce you to the Eastern Front. And I'm not sure whether or not, uh, you know, gamers really adopted it. But if you're going to break from the mold, if you're going to tell a different strategy from what Hollywood has hammered home time and again, what pop history has hammered home time and again, your first step almost has to be convincing players why they should care at all. Because it turns out the genre almost doesn't matter. Uh, you know, it's not like I'm a strategy gamer and you say this is a great strategy game. I'm interested. It's like, no, first, first you got to convince me that this topic is worth exploring. And then it's, it's almost like book browsing in a way, right? I mean, I think about, you know, that a lot of the games that have actually, my belief, and I've said this before and I'll say it a hundred times again, every game has an argument. Every strategy game has an argument. They have a case they're trying to make. It's all subtle. It's hidden curriculum, we call it in education school. By making, they just make assumptions and they impose something. They teach something by the very fact they exist. Now, I think back to great battles of history, ancients. Uh, GMT had published a bunch of board games on great battles of history and then did PC versions of them. And they were quite good. They were quite popular. And they had an exposed curriculum. These were games that had an agenda. The manual explained they wanted to teach how they thought ancient battles actually went. So they explained things in cases. They would have different variants of a couple of the battles. That said, well, if you go through this interpretation of the battle from this historian or from this other German historian who thinks it looked like this, and here's how it changes the output of the game, and here's why we think this one's better, but you can try this other one. Here's what this unit actually was. We think, we think the Cardass were sort of set up like a sort of mini hypaspists, only lighter troops, but the sources aren't sure. But if you make them this, then this battle turns out wrong. So you have this entire case laid out in manual for, you know, different battles, different units, explaining their justification for design issues, you know, why phalanxes move so slowly, why they're so brittle, um, etc. You know, why terrain, why they have to impose these specific types of terrain penalties on, you know, spear units, um, the restrictions they put on, on, on triary and these sorts of things that they justify based on Polybius or what have you. And there are always tons of problems there. But this was a game that, there weren't, first of all, it was coming in a world where there weren't a lot of ancient history war games. There still aren't a lot of ancient history war games. Uh, but it came out and was targeting a very elite audience in the board game system. And I'm not sure how well the computer games actually did, but there were three of them. So it did okay. You had Alexander, Hannibal, and Caesar. So it must have done well enough to bother making three. And it had an exposed argument. It was a game that was trying to convince and persuade uh, people who were interested in this. And if you were just new to it, you would come to it with you know, an understanding of what ancient warfare looked like. You have to read the documentation, but fortunately... Everyone had to back then because there weren't a whole lot of rollover tooltips to work with, and there certainly weren't much in the way of tutorials. And the manuals were excellent, and the in-game documentation was actually pretty good as well. Um, so there are games, I think, and these are, but these are on a very small level, a micro level. The macro level, it's a lot harder. The macro, the macro revisionist stuff, because you do end up getting into things like systems and things that take decision points away from the player and 
get kind of boring. <laughs> so I want to I want to turn this to John in just a second, but I do think it would be I would like to see actually more games sort of surface their their biases a little more, just because I think it's really interesting. It's the whole designer notes thing, right? Like that stuff is fascinating. I thought it was fascinating when we had Chris King on here, and he sort of explained what the economic model was really saying in Victoria too, which is you know that the world works exactly like imperialists and uh, Marxists uh, thought it did uh, back then. You know, everything was about you know securing uh, the fuel for your your modernizing economy. Um, but John, I want to turn to you a little bit because the reason I thought of you with this in connection with this topic is that so I think uh, you know a lot of times the the image of the late Roman Empire right tends to be very Roman centric right I think a lot of us identify as Westerners with you know the guys on the wall I mean shit you know it's always the fall of Rome it's not the rise of Visigoths (laughs) Uh, yeah well (laughs) fuck those guys uh (laughs) But but no, I think but I think that is that is kind of the kind of the point though is that Rome is still considered civilization, and whatever is on the other side of that frontier is going to be inherently destroying Western civilization and plunging us into a dark age, and that is kind of the the popular view, uh, and so I, I think a lot of games about that have tended to center on staving off that decline, staving off that final collapse, uh, seeing if you can sort of, you know, get another 500 years for Rome. Um, why did you go in a different direction? And, I mean, do you consider this kind of uh, taking a, you know, starting from a place of historical revisionism? Honestly, the way At The Gates started was it, it, it was born out of gameplay mechanics. Uh, something I've talked about with the game that I'm really excited about is the the idea of changing environment, the fact that there are seasons. And this was the starting point for what my new game was going to be, and I had no idea what the theme or the the, the background was going to be until I kind of settled on that. And I'd been listening to Mike Duncan's Excellent History of Rome podcast and just finishing it up then. And so I had, you know, dreams of Rome and falling, uh, you know, bouncing around in my head as I dreamed. And it kind of came together in that sense, where I wanted to build a new Forex game, and the whole point behind a Forex game is that you have expansion and, and exploration and these sorts of things. And trying to find examples of that throughout history uh, can be a little bit tough, at least in terms of you know, games that people would actually be interested in, in buying, uh, where you have all of the X's, uh, so to speak. And, and they tend to focus on the modern era, whether it's colonization uh, or imperialism. Uh, you have these games that are kind of a little bit later. And if you go too early, then things get really cloudy where it's like, okay, well, you're setting up Rome. And, you know, people kind of want to play as Rome in the height of the Roman Empire or the Roman Republic, those sorts of things. And it's, it's a little bit harder to justify... Uh, you know, what what you're doing there and, and why. Whereas I feel like the barbarians and, you know, quote-unquote, the fall of Rome is something that resonates a little bit more. And it's something that, you know, people still talk about the fall of Rome. So there is, if nothing else, a hook for the game, even if it's not, okay, you know, stave off the fall of Rome. It's, okay, well, everybody knows about the fall of Rome and how terrible it was and how it plunged civilization into the Dark Ages. But we're going to shine the light on the other side of uh of what's going on here so it, there's there's an initial hook uh it ties into the gameplay and uh, you know I, I do actually have a history degree i wouldn't call myself a historian but i'm at least you know somewhere in between and i did 
think that, hey, this is something that's kind of interesting. And honestly, I didn't put much thought into how well it would do commercially. Uh, I figured if I don't spend too much, if I don't spend too long, if I don't have a huge team, if I make it 2D, etc., that I can justify making this. And even if it only sells, you know, 50,000 copies or whatever, that that's just fine. Uh, but for a lot of other people, that wouldn't really be an option. Um, so it's it, it's kind of born out of a, a few different interesting things. And um, yeah, history is part of it. But honestly, the, the starting point was the gameplay mechanics. I wanted to make a Forks game. Uh, I wanted to have those environmental cycles. And then I sat down and said, all right, well, what what can we do that would actually work here? And uh, that, you know, was something that was on my mind. And it all kind of lined up together. Well, that's not very helpful. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, it's interesting because I'm, I'm reading a book, a biography of Attila the Hun uh, now, by a historian named Kelly. And it's a fun read. I haven't read a lot of uh, imperial history compared to Republican history. Um, but it's fun because he does this amazing job of saying, look, first of all, we know nothing, primarily. And what we do know from the Romans is probably a lie. Uh, about pretty much everything. You know, when, the, when you know, um, this is Roman historian writes about the Huns, which is this big source, of, one of our primary sources on who were the Huns? What did they look like? What did they live like? So he writes these, this long poetic story about them. You know, they don't really have kings and they are on their horses all of the time and they never stop and they, they, they will not sow and they'll put meat under their saddle and eat that and all of these great details. He says, you have to understand, he's just quoting Herodotus. He's just writing about Scythians again. This is just poetic license from somebody who knows that his audience will get the literary illusions. So this great, bio, this great you know, ethnography we have of the Huns uh, from Emilianus or Marcellinus, Mr. Marcellinus Emilianus, is largely bullshit. So you have to work from the fact there was also next to no archaeological record, because they just became they were like they were like the Mongols that they just became Goths. So the Mongols became Chinese. The Huns ended up you know taking up Gothic lifestyle once they settled. So, but the kind of stuff that they make, eh, we have no idea. So we have this weirdness of, you know, who were the Huns, and they become this, through Roman history, just just another barbarian group. And you see this in a lot of, you know, games. You know, they're, they're barbarians, and they're all, you know, a Vandal, a Goth, a Hun. They're all pretty much the same. Um, instead of, you know, actually kind of a unique culture with, you know, some unique beliefs, and they didn't like Goths, they didn't like Vandals. It wasn't just a tribal thing. There were actually some differences between them. Uh, so it's kind of fun to read an historian actually you know, do a little bit of revision on our common assumption of what barbarians were like, uh, that they weren't just all the same and that we can't trust everything the Romans have to say, uh, you know, because we know that Aetius would just say whatever he wanted to to save his own skin, mm-hmm. uh, for one thing. Uh, you know, these, and the historians were writing in a different historical tradition. They weren't our historians. We can't look at Greek and Roman historians and think, well, they're just historians like us. No, actually, they're not. They're they're. They're literary people. They're authors. You know, Caesar's making up half of his stuff, or making historic, making classical allusions, uh, and so are the guys uh, in the you know the fifth century, the fourth and fifth century. So it, it's fun to look at some of this, and you know, I'm, I I I like what I'm seeing. And at the gates doesn't capture this, but you know, you have there are differences in the way the leaders have approaches, and it's not just you know the barbarians. 
uh, versus the Romans. In fact, if anyone's more, if anyone's generic, it's the Romans. The Romans are people you mine for tech in your game, which I think is pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> to have the Romans as this generic tech mission factory. They give you missions and they give you technology and that's what they do. They're like they're like the super aliens in a 4X game. <laughs> a space 4X game. Yeah, and you know, t- to be fair, it's uh, with with at the gates I am trying to bring a new perspective. So it's not purely about mechanics. Oh, it's not yeah. purely about hey, you know, this was interesting, whatever. It's a good fit. What else works? Nothing. All right, well, we'll do this one. Uh, I think the important part with any representation is the fact that it exists and is being represented in a certain way. So the fact that you actually play as, you know, the barbarians, you play as the Germanic tribes or the, you know, the the, uh, steppe tribes, and you are making decisions from their perspective. You have you know, you need food, you need to find food. Okay, we need uh, minerals in order to produce tools in order to do certain things. The fact that you're even in the shoes of those people is important. It's not, you know, obviously we would love to have uh, primary sources from the, the sides of, you know, the Huns and the Scythians and whatnot that we could factor in uh, more mechanical goodies into, but it doesn't exist. So you, you got you kind of got to work with what you got. But a common element throughout all of history is that people are people. And even the most foreign people are typically, you know, very much like you. So if you imagine somebody that's, uh, you know, a, a German civilian in, in Dresden undergoing firebombing, you know, it's not that these are, you know, like mindless insects or, you know, human-like Nazi people. These are people that are, you know, running shops and, and, you know, printing and things like this. And the same is true to a large extent uh, in, in the more distant past as well. People are just trying to get by. They're hungry. They have kids that are, uh, you know, in danger and they, they want a better life for themselves and, and for the people that they care about. And depicting that, I feel like is is important. So it, it kind of goes back to what we started talking about with the show, where you have this revisionist history. And my, you know, my point is, was that hey, you, you know, we don't know exactly what happened from every angle. That's just the way it is. But the more perspectives you have, the more angles you have, the the more you are educated. The more you know about what happened, even if. Uh, nothing is particularly accurate all by itself. The more perspectives you have, the better. And that's, in in some ways, kind of what I want to do with with At The Gates. So, again, it's not going to sell a million copies, most likely, but it it kind of opens things up a little bit and gets people to think a little bit about what's going on. And, you know, that's that's kind of the answer uh, that we've always given when it comes to, you know, is civilization a historical game? And it's not really, you know, the answer is no, but... We want to spark curiosity and get people interested and get people asking questions. And that's something I'm trying to push a little bit more in At The Gates as well. And the fact that it is a little bit more of a foreign subject matter uh, helps in that in that perspective. So it's not hard history, perhaps. There's a lot of stuff I am making up and, and assumptions I'm making and holes I'm filling in with what I think is interesting or uh, you know, borrowing. <laughs> no, no, for everyone. No dragons. No dragons. No dragons. But... Uh, you know, in Practice. terms of... <laughs> uh, Two out of five. That might be the next game. Uh, but just this this idea of, okay, well, we can borrow some things and put you in 
the the shoes of these people and get you thinking about what that might be like. And it, it kind of is similar to what you're saying about the Romans, how they're just kind of this generic thing. Well, uh, that's kind of how people have viewed the barbarians, or this generic thing that comes off and, and fights you. And uh, there's actually a lot going on with the Romans and some of the stuff I need to bring out a little bit more. But it's this idea of what is your perspective? What is the story being told here? What is the fantasy that is being sold? And and with At the Gates, it's, hey, you're, you're taking on this side. Now, what do you do in that situation? Do you burn these people? Do you take their stuff? Do you kill in order to save your own? And in a lot of cases, the answer is yes. And you can kind of understand a little bit more about why that happened and what's going on. It's a little bit more of a personal angle than uh, some other strategy games have taken. So, you know, hopefully uh, we make some progress on that front. And if it uh, helps inspire some other, uh, you know, quote unquote revisionist history games in, in the future, that would be amazing. Um, so we'll see. It's, um, it's a good example of where I'm trying to balance between gameplay and, and realism uh, because it is tough to make historical strategy games. Uh, there are a lot of assumptions that you have to work with. Seems like an okay place to leave it. All right. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks again uh, for inviting me, guys. It was, uh, it's, it's an interesting topic. I wish I had a little bit more positive to say, I guess, about the, uh, the potential of uh, marrying more diverse perspectives on history with, with games. But, I, I, again, I think there is a lot of progress to be made there with smaller developers with Kickstarter. Uh, the fact that we even see something like a World War I adventure game is, is progress from where I'm sitting. So uh, I think eventually that will bleed into the strategy genre. And uh, 10 years from now, who knows, maybe we'll, uh, we'll finally get that uh, World War I Eastern Front game. <laughs> well, here's hoping. Uh, yeah, thanks so much for joining us, uh, John. And uh, boy, I hope I'll be interested to see how this episode is received, actually, because this was totally the three of us basically sitting around a table bullshitting. Uh, so we will research. see how that one goes. I did research. I, you looked at your bookshelf. I looked at my bookshelf. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm just, I, I, I enjoyed it. I, I loved this. This was a blast, except for the you know unholy hate in here. Uh, but aside from that, uh, this was fantastic. Turn your air conditioning um, back on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. A, should do a spinoff podcast where we just you know rant about history. All right, and uh, listeners, if you have you know good ideas for World War One games, uh, please do uh, send them in via Twitter or email. Uh, let us know because we are we are hard up for suggestions. Uh, about World War One themed games, and uh, right now our month of World War One is looking more like it'll be maybe a week and a half. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Uh, <laughs> but until then, uh, this has been Three Moves Ahead. Good night. Bye, everyone. Adios. Good evening. You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host Rob Zachney. Joining me today are my Three Moves Ahead co-founder, actually original. Fuck this. I'm tired and I'm hot. Let's restart. <laughs> I was hoping we could keep that. I, I, no, like 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 Stalin. I'm actually going to retcon myself into the founding of Three Moves Ahead, and then like eventually they'll be like, "Who's Troy? Who's Tom Check? What? It's always been this way." Um, all right, so just uh, drop it in the Dropbox or uh, upload it to Google Drive and share it with Michael Hermes, uh, and we'll get it up when we get it up. That's a terrible phrasing. Oh Jesus.